Ultimately, it's not about the wages that we're supposed to be paid. It's about lying on certain certifications. Welcome to GovCon Live. I'm your host, John Williams, and this is the second episode of XREL Radio, our multi-part series on the False Claims Act, which will include commentary on potential pitfalls for your company, enforcement issues, and emerging trends in this important area of the law. Today, we're talking to Sarah Nash, an attorney from our Labor and Employment Group. Sarah's going to share how the False Claims Act relates to construction contractors. She's going to provide real-world examples of False Claims Act cases brought against them, as well as strategies for protecting your company from a False Claims Act allegation. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and we hope to have some fun, too. But we're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. All right, disclaimer over. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you. Great. It's fun to be here. I've heard so much about it. It's fun to be a part of it. Well, it's a fun series that we're doing, and this series is on the False Claims Act. And Sarah, I know you're in our labor and employment group. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing in the labor and employment group? Absolutely. So much of our council is sort of just advising companies on the ins and outs of their employment matters, employment agreements, some termination decisions, handbooks. We kind of run the gamut on the employment side. Also, we do quite a bit when it comes to government contracting and requirements for service contractors and construction contractors, and just kind of helping them navigate the ins and outs of what it means to be a government contractor and have an employment workforce. Yeah. And anytime you're working with the federal government and you have regulatory and statutory requirements imposed on you under the contract, you have the potential for False Claims Act liability. False Claims Act being this very fun law that allows the government or a private party to go after a contractor when the contractor has either intentionally or recklessly disregarded some requirement of their contract and applying to get paid under a contract. I mean, that's a real broad overview, but that's the series that we're doing here. And so I think it marries up really well with what you're doing in the labor and employment group and helping our construction clients because of the Davis-Bacon Act, right? And and the what that imposes on contractors and opens up the door to potential False Claims Act liability. Right. I was really excited when you invited me here because often labor and employment, all we get is the whistleblower side of things. Like, oh, you and your employees and your whistleblowers. And there's a lot more to it than just the whistleblower side of things. And it does tie into compliance. And it's important that you have the right information going in to make sure that you don't end up in the middle of an FCA claim. All right. So let's talk about how does the Davis-Bacon Act come into play in False Claims Act cases? Yeah. So we deal a lot with the Davis-Bacon Act here. And one of the biggest sort of hangups for contractors who get dinged with the False Claims Act can be some certifications that they make through their construction sort of certifications to the government. So FCA does come up in the construction world quite a bit for that reason. 
So I hate to be silly, but Davis Bacon, that, that kind of sounds like breakfast, but could you give <laughs> us a little bit of a background on what we're talking about there? Absolutely. So Davis Bacon is it's a prevailing wage law. And what that means is it sets sort of a minimum standard for wages that specifically construction workers are supposed to be paid as essentially workers on government contracts. And it's the idea that Essentially, it was put forth through union lobbying, trying to make sure that there wasn't a race to the bottom in providing services to the government so that employees are paid a fair working wage. And so it applies specifically to contracts for construction, alteration, or repair. And generally, there's going to be information in your contract that indicates what kind of contract you're working on. But if the specific FAR provisions are in your contract, then Davis-Bacon will apply. If they're in your contract. So if they're not in your contract, do you not have to worry about it? Or should you ask? Or what's the rule of thumb there? If they're not in your contract, generally, unless you know that you're going to be constructing something, if you're going to be building something, yes, ask. Someone has gone horribly awry. Sometimes instead of the Davis-Bacon Act, you'll see the Service Contract Act, which is sort of a sister prevailing wage provision. But what Service Contract Act deals with is specifically services. And so you're not generally looking at the construction side of things. There can be some overlap sometimes. Sometimes there will be painting, for example, where you could see that on the Davis-Bacon side as well as the service contract side. But generally, when it's construction, you're building something, not engaging in general maintenance. Yeah, I think sometimes you can try to take advantage of the fact that they've left a clause out of your contract that's supposed to be in there, right? But in other contexts, it's not going to help you that it isn't there, right? And that's a hard thing to know for sure. Like, when is it to your advantage and when do you need to ask? The nice thing about Davis-Bacon and the Service Contract Act is that generally if it's not in there, then you're not bound to it. Okay. The caveat there is if DOL comes knocking on your door and they find out that certain wages should have been paid, you end up in this long sort of begrudging process dealing with DOL. And ultimately, the government will compensate you for any payments and back wages you owe, but it's, a, it's an annoying process. So if you can talk to the contracting officer at the very beginning, maybe you can save yourself the headache. That's not a knock you want on your door, I, I would imagine. No. And we're, we're working in the labor and employment group that you're part of with DOL audits and investigations on a regular basis, right? Unfortunately, yes. They do like to conduct audits. And if you've done everything right, it's fine. But every little thing, they will, they will tally it up and come after you. So you want to make sure that you're sticking to the rules. So DOL, that's a government enforcement arm related to these labor and employment requirements that we're talking about. False Claims Act, I guess, is sort of the private way of enforcing it, too, that relators have the ability to file a case. I mean, the government could pursue it, too. So I guess you've got maybe DOJ, maybe some disgruntled former employee. I'm sure that never happens for construction contractors. Yeah. So generally, the DOL is the enforcement arm when it comes to making sure that the Davis-Bacon rules and requirements have been followed, wages have been paid, everything's going according to the law. One of the problems with the FCA, the False Claims Act, is that it has given workers this sort of roundabout way of coming after their employers for unpaid wages. And it's interesting because some of the first Davis-Bacon False Claims Act cases 
employers would essentially argue this very thing. They would say, this isn't, this isn't the purview of this individual. DOL is supposed to be handling these issues. But courts have said, essentially, no, this is a perfectly responsible way to go about False Claims Act cases. Because ultimately, what you're challenging isn't the wages that were paid, it's the lies that were made for better or for worse to the government. So ultimately, it's not about the wages that were supposed to be paid. It's about lying on certain certifications. How are you protecting against that? That I mean, other than don't lie, like <laughs> what, what are what are some of the the key tips there? Unfortunately, it's not always as simple as yeah, don't don't lie. Generally, right. you want to make sure that you're up to date on the requirements. And when it comes to the Davis Bacon Act, there are some things that aren't necessarily intuitive. So it's important to sort of do your due diligence and make sure that you're reading the requirements, learning about them, and practicing the sort of certain nuanced ways that people have to go about performing the contract. One of the biggest things, which makes sense, is you have to make sure that you're paying the prevailing wage. Generally, when you get a contract, it will show you the wage rates for different classifications of employees. You look at the number, you say, okay, I'm not going to pay this employee less than X dollars. There's another caveat there, though. It's not just about the wages, because under these prevailing wage acts, you also have a duty to provide the prevailing fringe benefit. A fringe is what you might think of health and welfare or health benefits, different things that you might give to an employee in addition to their wages. And under the Davis-Bacon Act, there's a specific number that you also have to be providing to employees. For the fringe benefits. It's right. It's right. So that'll be in the contract if they've incorporated the Davis-Bacon Act provisions. Exactly. Into, okay. I mean, the nice thing about all of this is there should be something very clearly that's telling you what you need to do. And if you read your instructions, you can follow them and make sure that you're kind of crossing the right path. The only issue is you want to make sure that you're also passing down any of these requirements to subcontractors. So... A requirement is of under Davis-Bacon, not just that you have to make sure that all of your employees are kind of paid in a compliant way, but you have to make sure that your subs employees are paid in a compliant way. So the prime contractor could have liability for a subcontractor that hasn't paid its own employees properly. Exactly. And so that's where it becomes really important that you're not only passing down FAR provisions in your subcontracts, but also sitting with your subcontractors and making sure that they understand the requirements that are imposed. Yeah, it seems to me that you need a right to audit, too, over your subcontractor to be able to come in and and ensure that, that you have comfort that they're living up to their obligations. That's a great provision to include just to make sure that you can exert the sort of control that you need to. Because if you don't, you could be on the hook for misstatements that they're making. So does the obligation to ensure your subcontractors are complying bring with it its own separate potential liability then under the False Claims Act? That you know, that would be a whole other area that you've got to be mindful of a potential claim, right? So there have been a few cases where, for example, in there was a case Circle C in the Sixth Circuit. Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. Say that three (laughs) times fast. Circle C in the Sixth Circuit in 2012, that very issue came up where the prime was on the hook because they had essentially submitted their certified payroll. But in that certification, they had 
first of all, they had promised that they had submitted information for all of their employees and their sub-employees. And they also promised that they had paid all the prevailing wages associated with that work that was completed. The problem was that one of their subs was doing electrical work, had not, in fact, been submitting certified payroll. Not only had they not submitted it, but they weren't paying the prevailing wages. And so eventually an employee came forward as a relator in a False Claims Act case and alleged that they had falsely certified to the government that they were compliant with Davis-Bacon and that they had submitted all their certified payroll. Was that an employee of the prime or an employee of the sub? So it was an employee of the sub in that instance. But the prime gets dragged into that litigation because they're the ones that are ultimately responsible. So they, yeah, they ultimately ended up holding the bag, as it were. And originally, the sub and the prime had been included. The sub ended up settling early on. And so when it got to the Sixth Circuit, it was just looking at the prime's responsibility. And the only silver lining that came out of that case was that originally, there had been hundreds of thousands of damages, because I believe we talked about this last week, you can have trouble damages under the FCA. The nice thing that came out of the Sixth Circuit decision, at least for contractors, is the court essentially said that challenging this practice was one thing, but you can't essentially fill up the government's coffers by going after tons of money that ultimately wasn't lost. So originally, the government had tried to argue that they were owed treble damages for the entire value of the electrical work that was completed. The court said, no, that's a fairyland. You can't get all of those dollars. What you can get, though, is the amount of money that these sub-employees should have been paid. And so they ended up, I think the final damages in the case were $9,000. Well, it's important to note, though, that the government often does live in fairyland, (laughs) right? And, And so if they come to you with a demand letter or their position at the outset of an investigation or a case or a relator, you know, it just it becomes a difficult situation to deal with, even if you're ultimately vindicated in, I guess that was an appeal. That would have been a long process for that contractor to go through. Absolutely. And if there hadn't been that much money, it might not have made sense, but they ended up sort of winning in the end, it seems. But yeah, it can be scary to stare down at the government and say, no, we're not going to do that. So, okay, so they this subcontractor improperly certified the payroll and didn't actually pay or didn't didn't submit the certified payroll and didn't pay the people what they were supposed to. Are there other like hallmarks of uh, potential false claims act cases related to uh, Davis Bacon? Yeah, generally it's going to relate to the amount that you've been paying employees making sure that you haven't been taking kickbacks on that money, making sure that they've ultimately gotten all the benefits that are owed to them. One of the nice things that sort of protects contractors is that still courts have found that the DOL is ultimately responsible for deciding labor classifications. So another thing that we often run into in Davis-Bacon world is employers have wrongly classified employees. Say they've classified someone as a laborer, which is generally a classification that's paid at a lower wage rate, when they're actually performing electrical work or they're doing some sort of mechanic work that is especially skilled. And so when it comes to those sort of misclassifications, courts have found that's not FCA territory. That's still exclusively the purview of DOL. So there are some things that 
employers can mess up, but generally you're not going to be on the hook from an FCA perspective. Okay. So if I tried to bring a claim against a construction firm for paying somebody as a laborer as opposed to they were really performing electrical work, that wouldn't get off the ground from an FCA perspective, but maybe a DOL enforcement type audit. Exactly. At least that's what courts have said so far. Okay. That's good to know. So, But how do you make that decision? I guess as a contractor, you're, you're using your good faith, best efforts to understand the nature of the position and the work that's being done. But I mean, are, are there any resources? Is this when they call you and our other colleagues in the labor and employment group to make sure that they're classifying the people correctly? It can get a little bit complicated. Thankfully, in the construction world, generally, you know when someone's a painter, you know when they're driving trucks, you you know when they're performing these types of work. The times it can get a little bit more complicated is when there's some overlap between Davis-Bacon and the Service Contract Act, where it's unclear whether they're performing the service side of things or the construction side of things. It can also be confusing when you're dealing with workers, especially in the construction world, where they wear a few different hats. And not only do they wear a few different hats when it comes to labor classifications, but they're also working on a number of projects. So they can move from one Davis-Bacon Act project to one that's a non-government commercial project. And you really want to make sure that you're tracking your hours and making sure that everybody's filling out the documents that they need to be filling out. Would you ever go to a to DOL to ask them ahead of time? Or is this the kind of thing that you you make your judgment and you document it? And if there's ever a question about it, you're prepared to defend it? DOL did recently restart its opinion letters where it's providing contractors, employers with opinions on certain practices. So you could reach out to them if you had a question about this sort of thing. The only problem is you don't necessarily want to out yourself if you're doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. So you want to think about it. You want to engage counsel that before you... That might not you... make sense in all cases. Talk with Sarah and her colleagues. It sounds like before you just go and do that. But I could see an argument that that goes toward you know intentional misconduct or having your head buried in the sand, which, I mean, these are generally, I think, the False Claims Act standards, right? That it, you, it, you had to make some intentional mistake with the certified payroll or the way that you paid people, or you were so recklessly disregarding of the requirements or you had your head buried in the sand. So if you're making good faith efforts to classify this person as an electrical worker versus a laborer, and ultimately you might be wrong, I could see how that's a that's a DOL issue, not a False Claims Act issue. Absolutely. Generally with the False Claims Act, you just want to make sure that you're not certifying to something that if you were to re- just read just read. I think that's the best lesson. If you're signing something that says, I certify that I have done X, Y, Z, make sure that you've actually done it. Because if you haven't, it can lead to a lot of headaches. All right. You hear that, everybody? Sarah says, read your contracts. It's amazing. That is the best advice that we could give. Because how often do we end up in situations where the client's in a tough spot because they haven't actually read the contract. They don't realize what the contract says. So I, I'm making light of it, but that's really a, that's great advice. And it sounds like it applies here just like it does in most instances, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And it's free. Right. Right. Although it may be painful, but, but important to do for sure. So what other unique issues come up in the construction realm when it comes to False Claims Act potential? Anything that we haven't talked about? 
Well, we've talked about the payroll certifications, but the other thing I want to remind everyone is that these are weekly certifications. So you need to be signing off on these on a weekly basis. And attached to that is this requirement that you need to be paying your workforce on a weekly basis on Davis-Bacon work. And that's something that generally in the current day and age, people have a biweekly payroll, maybe twice a month. They're sending out paychecks, but in the Davis-Bacon that world- will fly for nope. Davis-Bacon. Once a week. Okay. Now, what would be the damage if you didn't pay on a weekly basis? Or, you know, we're talking about your class, you paid somebody not the prevailing wage, maybe a couple bucks less. I mean, does that limit the potential attractiveness of False Claims Act cases for relators in this realm, do you think? Just because, am I correct in perceiving the dollar amounts might be lower? True. I think that ultimately, the relator would be able to recoup, assuming they had a good claim, the sort of difference between what they should have been paid and what they ultimately were paid. And I don't know if I've actually seen a case where both DOL and the FCA have come at it from different sides where the worker gets, I would assume it's possible, the worker gets both back wages after a DOL investigation and gets the FCA relator the trouble, da- the damages, the sort of the punitive aspect. Exactly. Of it. And so, yeah, they could get a windfall in that respect. It just might not be, I mean, I, you know, th- I'm just theorizing here. Maybe it's not as attractive because of the, to the average relator, because of the cost of the time going through the process. What do you think? It could take a lot of time and ultimately, depending depending on what the practices are, but there's also a lot of damages that can be owed by not following the prevailing wages because generally, especially in Davis-Bacon world, you have some pretty high wages because it's construction. You're looking at, this is not standard sort of low-wage workers. This is generally a higher base. And so if you've been paying people $12 an hour when the minimum was $50 an hour, that adds up pretty quickly, especially if you've been on projects for months, years. And so if you have enough workers, it can add up to a pretty sizable claim. So there you go. So yeah, that's my misperception. And that might be shared by our clients that these maybe are lower dollar, less susceptible to False Claims Act cases. I mean, the average construction contractor might not be thinking, you know, I paid somebody this per hour versus that per hour. There's a potential False Claims Act case here, but there is if there's intentional reckless wrongdoing, right? Absolutely. And not to be all doom and gloom, but the other thing you want to be thinking about when you're creating, I mean, hopefully no one out there is planning their Davis-Bacon violation and just sitting there ready to execute. But you want to be. If you are, please call Sarah immediately. (laughs) Immediately. This is not a test. If you are in that position, though, debarment is also a really big sort of threat that can be thrown from DOL. And so whenever someone, especially in the willful kind of area, is not paying workers what they should be paid, debarment could be on the horizon. So you don't want to run into that because that could have severe consequences, obviously, for your business. Yeah, absolutely. So are there other False Claims Act cases that might be helpful just to give an as an example of how they manifest in this area? Yeah. So another example is actually a case that was settled in 2016. And it's a good reminder that 
subcontractors, even though they don't have privity with the government, even though they don't have a direct contract with the government, can still be on the hook for FCA claims. And this is a case where essentially the Tennessee Valley Authority was paying a prime contractor to then in turn pay workers for payroll expenses, including the wages themselves, but also taxes and other sort of expenses that go along with payroll. And what happened here is the subcontractor ended up not spending all of the money that was given to it for that purpose on payroll. And so rather than letting the government know that ultimately they had received sort of a windfall, they just kept it. I should specify that according to the settlement, this is all alleged allegations. So whether or not they actually kept it, I guess we'll never know. But the point is they ended up settling for $2.8 million, all because of this question of whether they had ultimately kept more from the government that they should have. And so this case is Azada et al. v. Bechtel. And essentially the lesson here is just because you're a subcontractor and you're not directly signing on with the government doesn't mean you still can't be pulled into these FCA claims. Interesting. And, and, and that kind of dovetails with the other case we were talking about where it was ultimately the subcontractor had made the mistake but the prime contractor ended up still being on the hook. So as a subcontractor, you prime or sub on projects subject to Davis-Bacon, you got to be minding your P's and Q's. All right, so it sounds like a really important part of Davis-Bacon Act compliance is the certified payroll. And it might be helpful to talk a little bit about like what goes into that. So there is a example on DOL's website that kind of, it's not required, but it's an example of what you could submit as part of your certified payroll. And generally, the information that needs to be on such a certification is pretty straightforward. You have the name and the worker's classification. You have the hourly rates of pay, so essentially the prevailing wage that you're paying. And remember, it's a floor, it's not a ceiling. So if you end up paying higher than the prevailing wage, totally fine. Then you also want to record the daily and weekly numbers of hours that the employee has worked, any deductions that you've made, and the actual wages paid. And this sounds silly, but it happens often enough that it's worth reminding people. You also want to make sure that you sign the thing because it's a certified payroll. And if you don't make that signature, perhaps you're protecting yourself from an FCA violation. But on the other hand, the government's going to be pretty unhappy with you. The last thing I'll say about certified payroll is that you want to make sure that you're keeping these for three years. So you're obviously certifying to the hours worked. It's a record of the payroll. So I, I get it that the function here is to confirm what your people were paid and that they were paid in accordance with the Davis-Bacon Act. Is it also a certification of the work that was done, like the quality of the work or the nature of the work? Is there a need not only to be confirming that John Smith worked 40 hours this week and was paid X dollar an hour, but like what he actually did on the project? That actually might be a good idea for the government to consider moving forward if they really want a report card of the work that's been done. But thankfully, no, you don't have to get into sort of the nuances of what flooring was put down, what piping was completed. Really, this is ultimately just about numbers and the numbers are the pay and the hours worked. It's purely a certification of what was paid. Got it. All right. So obviously, 
nobody listening to this wants to be the receiver of a False Claims Act case regarding the Davis-Bacon Act or, frankly, anything else for that matter. So do you have any tips, Sarah, from your travels in the labor world and False Claims Act cases on how we could best avoid? Obviously, you can't prevent entirely a disgruntled employee from wanting to file something, but what are some things that you can do to, to minimize that as much as possible? Right. So if someone does file a False Claims Act claim against you, you do want to be in a position to tell them, no, they're wrong. And so some good ways to make sure that you're complying with best practices is, first of all, listen to podcasts like this, educate yourself about Davis-Bacon Act. If you're new to the construction world or new to the government contracting world, it's important. Take some seminars, watch some webinars. We have a few that we've put out through our practice, but make sure that you're reading up and understanding what you're signing on to. The other thing that I'll say is that it's straightforward. Again, pay the prevailing wage. Don't try to be cute with getting around certain requirements. The numbers are there for a reason. And if you pay them, you'll be fine. And generally, if you're bidding your contracts right, you'll be bidding it in a way that accommodates making those additional payments for workers. The other thing that we touched on earlier is you want to make sure that you're flowing down the right FARC provisions to your subcontractors, because it's very important that they also are contractually on the hook to make sure that if you get caught with some big violation, they're not just going to be out the door and not shouldering any of the kind of financial responsibility. Yeah, like we talked about, I think it's important not just to flow it down in the subcontract, but to flow it down with an audit, right? And the ability to get in there and really make sure that get the comfort that you need, make them show you as a subcontractor, show you proof that they're complying. Absolutely. We'll have some clients who will sit down and have weekly sessions with their subs, just sitting with them as they fill out the certified payroll. Because it's not that intuitive and you do need a little bit of handholding. And so it's important that you're giving the subs the tools that they need if they are a smaller business to be able to complete them accurately. And lastly, I'll just say, we talked about it so many times, but submit your certified payroll. Make sure that you're kind of filling out the paperwork that you need to be certifying to the government that you're in compliance. Great. Thanks, Sarah. That was super. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polero Mazza production. Music credits go to bensound.com, and I've been your host, John Williams. Next time on XREL Radio, we'll be talking to Michelle Lidikin from our government contracts group about how the False Claims Act affects companies in the healthcare industry. Michelle's going to talk about potential risks these companies face and strategies for avoiding an FCA claim. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.